Good morning. It's good to see all you folks. You can take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, please. Each week that I get to uh, come and uh, share God's word with you during this sabbatical experience, we're going to be looking at uh, um, the king and his kingdom. So Jesus as our king and what it means for us to be in his kingdom. We were uh, talked about this last time that I was here, the idea of the church being part of the kingdom of God and being the place that the kingdom of God is actually the presence. It, it rests here in God's called out ones, his, his ecclesia. This gathering of people who are vested with his authority, with his instruction, with his government. And our, our job, our role in this world is to take that government and to change the world with it. So he gives us his kingdom. We walk in the ways of his kingdom. Uh, with Jesus came the kingdom. And the kingdom in its fullness is something that we are engaging now and still see coming. So it's a beautiful calling that God has given us. We have the... Um, the, the call from the Lord to be about this through loosing and binding, through, through, through releasing God's government in this world. That th- this isn't just about the fact that Jesus came to save us. This isn't just about the idea of getting out of here. The, the idea, this idea of salvation as a ticket to heaven is, is very, that's not Jesus. That's evangelicalism, but that's not Jesus. Uh, Jesus didn't save us to get us out of here. Jesus saves us to get us more here. Uh, he, he is the reason why we are here, and when he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not a pipe dream. It's not something that, that, that's far off. The idea is not to get there. The idea is to get there here, and that's what it means to be about the king and his kingdom. It's that the way that God operates in heaven, thy will be done on earth here as it is in heaven, means that you and I living in the kingdom has everything to do with who is king. Key question for Parker Ford Church in this sabbatical experience. Is Jesus king at Parker Ford Church? Is he the supreme voice? Is he the supreme ruler? Somehow the Christian church in America got twisted to be democratic. If you read your Bible, you're not going to find that. We're very uncomfortable with the concept of theocracy with the idea of God being king. But if we're going to read the scriptures and take them for what they actually say, we better get comfortable with it and do so pretty quickly because it's how Jesus posits himself. So if Jesus is king, and we'll look at that a little bit further, if Jesus is king, one thing that a king does is a king doesn't stand for other rulers to try and rule against him. Right there, there just isn't room for that. There's not a place for multiple presidents in America, right? It doesn't matter how dissatisfied or, or, or um, unpleased people might be. It just it can't happen. When sovereignty comes into question, kings will do whatever kings have to do in order to keep that sovereignty solidified and nailed down to where it needs to be. We humans do that very imperfectly, and with deeply destructive consequences. But God's most loving thing for us is for him to be king in our lives, period. So what is it that keeps us from walking in the reality of Jesus as our king? 
What is it that keeps God's kingdom far from us? What is it that clouds our minds and our imaginations to make us live small lives where we, we, we live sub God's best for us? Just trying to keep the rules and work hard and do better and be pretty moralistic, be a pretty good person, and then die and go to heaven. Woo! Doesn't that sound like a great life? Work hard for God that you're afraid of most of the time and then die and go to heaven where apparently there's all kinds of great stuff like singing forever and golden streets and stuff like that, which doesn't mean anything to any of us right here, right? It's, it, 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 we, we have these imaginative concepts that are not helpful to us. And it's because we've lost the concept of, of God as king now, of Jesus as king now. If Jesus were running this church service, what would it look like? Right? If God was king over the leadership teams of this church, what would that be? If God was king in your life every moment of the day, what would Tuesday night at 10.30 p.m. look like? What would your next conversation with your boss look like? What would the person that you rub elbows with at your kids' practices, what would that look like if Jesus was king? He wants to be king. He came to be king. He came to rule but he absolutely will not rule where there are other rulers vying for position. He also will not force himself upon you. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He moves according to invitation and openness. And if you and I want to live falsely, we have license, we have freedom to do that. But it leads us down a path of destruction. It leads us down a path of a joyless, unfulfilled life in Christ. The question is always, is God king? Now, in ancient times, the whole idea of a king was that the king had a kingdom and the kingdom had a fortress. It was pretty important to have a place where everybody could retreat when the enemy was attacking. And so if you think about it, when one nation would attack another, this fortress, this stronghold would attack this stronghold. In 2 Corinthians 10, we read about strongholds. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion or every vain imagination raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Who is our stronghold. Sunday school answers work. Who's our stronghold? All right, folks, up here. Who's our stronghold? I'm going to try one more time. Who's our stronghold? God, yeah. But there's still like 50% of you that aren't saying anything. Uh, folks, look at me. Words matter. Declaration counts. When I ask you a question, you give me an answer. Are we all together? This is the Baptist in me coming out right now. (laughs) Who is our stronghold? That's right. That's right. Is there any other stronghold worth being in? No, that's right. So when we are called to have God as our stronghold, he's our tower, he's our fortress, he's our deliverer, he's our rock, he's the one in whom we trust. He's the place that we take refuge. When things go bad, when our life doesn't make sense, when things happen that we don't want or didn't ask for, there's some place where we got to go. And it's to him. He is our stronghold. This idea of not having stronghold in your life is not biblical. The problem with it is that you are to have one stronghold, and that's it. When other strongholds are built up against this 
one stronghold that we're meant to have, this is where the problem exists. Because what we say is, Jesus, you're king. But then we, we go over to these, to these other parts of God's kingdom and we carve out this area. And over here, well, there's this other little king that I come and bow to every now and then. It's called greed. Right? And so every now and then I come and I, I find refuge in greed. Because when I feel insecure in my life, I can come over here and I can count my money. And I can think about how nice it is to have money. You know, or I build this other thing over here, and this is lust. This is inappropriate desire, you know, and the, want, the desire to have things that aren't mine. And so, yeah, Jesus is king, but I find security over here where I don't— I mean, the way God offers me security is through faith. Eh, I'm not too sure about that. Strongholds come against the stronghold that is God. So either you are worshiping God, either you are knowing God— or you're worshiping idols. There's no in-between. Right? There, there, there's, no, there's no gray area in, in, in between. We are either knowing God or we are knowing idols. One of those two things. Either God is king of everything or he is not king at all in our lives. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 points out to us that the arguments and the vain imaginations are raised against what? A knowledge of God, not knowing about God, but knowing him, experiencing him, engaging him, worshiping him, understanding that the king is also our father, is also our priest, is also the lover of our souls, that this king is unlike any other king, that he's, the most, he's not a totalitarian dictator. He's this loving, nurturing father with all this power that he wants to give us to walk in and to take his government and his kingdom and spread it everywhere. Right? The ability to know God is what comes up for grabs. And other strongholds, idolatrous strongholds, are raised against this experience of God. So false strongholds operate according to two things, arguments and vain imaginations. Arguments and vain imaginations. Arguments are things that you think. Vain imaginations are things that you feel, pictures that you have. So an argument is a way that you and I engage God or engage ourselves with false speaking. So when I say, who is our stronghold? And we say, oh, God. Or we just sit there like, oh, I've known this for years. Why does he want me to say this? You know, then it's just sort of, our arguments matter. What we say matters. How it is that we convince ourselves to do or not do something, that, that matters. Because that unveils motivations. And then avail, unveils ways of thinking that either are in line with God or not in line with God. Vain imaginations are pictures, things that I have of myself. Empty thoughts that I have of myself, like what it means for me to be successful. Because if I read the scriptures, you know, success is defined very differently for me than the world if I do that. I was reflecting on my year last year. Um, I do that at the end of each year, just try and spend time with God. And I had a big year from a ministry standpoint last year, real important year, you know, and things happened and my job shifted some and I got some higher leadership uh, avenues. I traveled around the world and spoke the gospel. It was a big thing. And I'm looking at it in my last year and thinking to myself, I'm just not like connecting with God in this as I reflect on my year. The Holy Spirit came in and he goes, when did you feel the most joy in the last year? And I thought, and I thought, I thought for a while about that. I thought for like a couple hours, 
when did I feel the joy in the last year? And everything I thought about was in regard to like work. And he just kept saying, no, no, I would bring this up, this experience or that experience. Nope, that's not it. That's not it. Do you know where I felt the most joy in the last year? It was last November when my son's U11 soccer team won the Lebanon Lancaster soccer championship. And I'm his coach. We won. I mean, it was intense. Like, you should have been at these games. We were down 2 nothing with 10 minutes left in the semifinal. We, a team that we had beaten twice already, and we were playing lousy. But then the smallest kid on our team, who barely gets any playing time, I had to put him in. It was just, I had to. I had to give the kid some, <laughs> some time. And he goes in, and he scored a goal. And we all freaked out. Jared scored a goal. And then Noah came down the left wing and poked one in the back on the, on the, the far net. And then we won in a penalty shootout. And then in the championship game, there were six goals scored in the first 10 minutes. The score was 3-3. Three to three. And the game won down until we finally won. 30 seconds left. We put a goal in a little center, uh, center midfielder. We won 4-3, won the championship. Honestly, I have never. You would have thought I won the Super Bowl. You, know, it was just, you would have thought there was a check waiting for me at home for this. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the Lord, th- this is God's government. My connection with my son and his friends and my ability to look at these 11-year-old boys and tell them how proud I was of them and how much they meant to me and how, how, what character they had, how they didn't give up and how they got frustrated with each other, but they, they came back around. That, that was the high point, right? What, what was not? What was not was how much money I made. What was not was, was what kind of kingdom I built for, for myself. What was not was how successful Cornerstone was doing or teaching the word or any of those things or how, or how good I felt about myself at the end of the day. It was rather just this engagement with these boys that brought this kingdom of God into this place. It was an amazing experience. But when I argue and I have empty pictures of myself, I live other ways. I live subpar. I, I, I live below what it is that God has for me. The Philippians... The church in Philippi, they dealt with the same thing. Paul says to them, be of one mind, be of one accord. Do not do anything out of strife. Don't do anything out of conceit or selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is an argument. You argue yourself into thinking about who it is that you think you want to become. And you convince yourself of what that is. It's a selfish ambition. Vain imaginations, conceit like an arrogant posture of myself, thinking of myself more highly than I ought. This, is all, these kind, this dichotomy is all over Scripture. And all of these things are leveled against a knowledge of God. God calls you to know him, to be in him, to engage him, to love him, to experience him. These false strongholds, these arguments, these vain imaginations, they keep us, they keep us from knowing God as king. How many of you like epic movies? Like Braveheart, an epic movie, or Lord of the Rings, that trilogy, epic, you know, just these big, sweeping, epic things, you know, Tommy Boy, epic, you know, movie. Um, (laughs) There is an epic battle that takes place in Scripture. I, I mean, just massive. It's huge. We don't realize how big it is because we let it get dumbed down and whittled down and flannel graphed for us and it needs to get unpacked and and allowed to be what it's supposed to be. So as we go to John 18, like delete your hard drive for what you think you know about the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And let's look at this epic battle 
between these two strongholds. When Jesus came in John 18, that's where you're going, John 18. Uh, when Jesus came, there was no question about why he came. He came to the disciples and he said, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's with you. And he says, it's in you. And he came bringing the kingdom to set himself up as king. And his whole ministry and his whole life was centered around this. And he rewrote the governmental laws. You've heard it said that you should think like this or that you should pray like this or that you should fast like this or give like this. But I say to you, you're supposed to live like this or fast like this, give like this, pray like this. The laws that you thought that you knew don't work on the Sabbath according to all those traditions. Let me show you how, what it means to work on the Sabbath. You know, let your hand be restored. Jesus is continually going around rewriting everything. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious establishment, who have all the power, they're looking at him and going, he's drawing a following. The people are following him. And Jesus breaks a happy meal into 5,000, you know, 10,000 people get fed through this, uh, you know, burger and fries. And it's just an amazing thing. And all these people are flocking to him. And he tells them, you don't understand what you're asking. You want to be my followers? You just come to me because you want some food. You want bread, you want fish, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and then you'll understand what it means to have part of me. They say, this is tough. This is hard. Many, many disciples left him that day. He turns to the 12 just to push them a little harder and says, do you want to leave too? All right, this is our king. This is our king. He, he is, to use the word demanding, is false. Right? Because Jesus doesn't need anything from us. His kingdom is fine. All right, the cross, the empty tomb, the kingdom is solid. But when we come to him in his ways, it is in submission to his government and it is in submission to his kingship. And so who he is here on the earth is bringing itself down as he's, he's back and forth with the religious leaders. He's back and forth with his disciples. There, there's these things, these engagements that are happening all through his life where he's rewriting the script where he's taking things into account. And finally, like the whole nation is pretty much bought in. Hosanna, Hosanna. He's coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. You know, he's a God who brings peace and not war. This is the one that we want. This is the one who's going to release us from Roman oppression. And then he's delivered over to be crucified. He's betrayed by one of his followers, one of his generals, one of his captains. They betray him and give him over to who? To the religious leaders? Well, they can't have him killed the way that they want him to. So what has to happen? They have to go to the king. They've got to find Re Caesar or Caesar's representative. And that's where we see John 18. Verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now again, Pilate. Caesar's representative, the legal head. It's as though, in Roman law, it's as though Caesar himself is sitting there when Pilate is speaking. What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, isn't that nice? You know what I mean? Like, like oh, but Pilate, but we're telling you he did something wrong. You know, it's like my son tattletaling on his brother. But I swear, Dad, I saw him do it. You know, well, that's not real substantiative. You know, we need to, 
we need, we need to push further into this. Oh, you're telling me he did something wrong. Pilate said, fine, then take him yourselves and judge him. The Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, so, like, this is a setup. It's moving in, and there's this, there's this, this group over here that probably Pilate, he's probably pretty sick of hearing from their religious leaders as often as he does. And he doesn't understand their customs or their ways. And now they're here, and they brought this guy who he's pretty sure is innocent. And now he's got to deal with this junk because they, for some reason they want him to be killed. And they won't step into his office. Did you notice? Like the religious leaders will not step into his office. So Pilate calls Jesus by himself into his headquarters for this epic battle. Caesar, Rome itself, the king is standing on one side and the king is standing on the other. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And so are you saying that you're me? Are you saying that you're above me? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say, that, say it to you about me? Jesus, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now pay attention. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate wants to make this about politics. Pilate wants to make this about power structures. Pilate wants to make this about socioeconomic conditions. And who's leading who in this situation? Jesus refuses to go there. Jesus will not, listen, argue. Jesus will not argue. He will stick to what is true. What is absolutely true is that Jesus is the king. What is absolutely true is that Jesus comes bringing a kingdom. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Yep. Is Jesus the king of Pilate? Yep. Is he the king of Caesar? You better believe it. All these things are true. Pilate wants to talk politics. Pilate wants to talk power. Pilate wants to argue. Pilate has a vain imagination, a vain imagination that he's actually Caesar's representative and that that means something in the long run. When in reality, the very one that he needs to do business with is standing before him. And if someone's going to submit one direction or another, it's going to be Pilate to the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus will not be thwarted from his focus about what is real. For this purpose, I came into the world. It is to bring my kingdom, and the truth will bear itself out in reality. The truth will win. Jesus does not argue. Jesus does not buy into his vain imaginations. Jesus calls Pilate to truth, and then what does Pilate say? Next verse. Pilate said to him, and this is where you wish you were there to hear the tone of voice. Right? 
What is truth? Like, did he say that mockingly? Did he say it earnestly? Did he say it like shrugging? Like, what's truth? We don't know. But we do know this. He went back outside and told the Jews, I find no guilt in him. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you? Does he say Jesus? Nope. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate takes Jesus and he delivers him over to be flogged and to be beaten. And they put a crown of thorns on his head and they mock him. They hail, king of the Jews, you think you got so so much power. Look at us taking your power away. Wham, wham. They beat him and he's bloody and he's beaten. And he brings him out and he shows him to the people. And he says, behold the man. Like, look at him. Look at what he, he has gone through. Are you satisfied now? And they yell, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him. Now again, Jesus sticks to truth. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate versus Jesus, Caesar, the kingdom of Caesar versus the kingdom of God. When it comes to living in a way that you and I know God as our stronghold and know nothing else but God as our stronghold, it means that you and I believe and speak and walk in what is true and nothing else. That's what Paul means when he says, we take every thought captive to Christ. We take every thought captive. So here goes this fleeting thought of fear out of my mind. I'm terrified of what's going to happen in this situation. That thing comes crashing back in submission to the reality of God's love for me. And that perfect love casts out fear. And when this thought comes flying out of my mind or a vain imagination that God is holding out on me and the picture that I have of myself is that God has all these beautiful resources that he's giving to everyone else and he's holding out on me and I don't have what I need, then the truth of what's real gets taken captive and brought back into line that God is good and I've seen his goodness before, and I'm going to see it again. And it might look weirder than I thought that it would, but this is true. This is real. To follow the fear, to follow the vain imagination, to follow the poverty spirit, is to worship idols. And these things, they receive power, and they're built up in our lives, and pretty soon we've got kingdoms vying with kingdom. And God just simply will not stand. Jesus will not stand for his sovereignty to be compromised. And so we live our lives and these strongholds are built up. And before we know it, we have these ridiculous strongholds in our lives. And they've got so much power and so much grounding and so much rootedness. And we look at ourselves and we're like, where did this come from? This thing's destroying me. And it's because truth has gotten replaced with lies. Arguments and vain imaginations have taken over 
And here we find ourselves stuck. And God is not our stronghold now. We've got all kinds of false strongholds and we're getting eaten alive by the enemy. The question is always, is Jesus king? And if Jesus is king, then nothing else is allowed to be. Truth is the only thing that will tear down the arguments and the vain imaginations that own who you and I are. And it's this truth that Pilate finds himself confronted with. And it's this truth that Parker Ford Church finds herself confronted with. You're an, Amer- you're an American church filled with pretty much all American people, which means that you have a stronghold. It means that you have a false idol called worship of time. Right? And we, we, we talk about time in terms of commodity. We talk about spending time as though I can pull it out of my pocket and sort of divvy it out. And where I divvy out time becomes my value point. Some things I have to do, right? I mean, I got to go to work. So that gets a lot of time, and then I'm sort of bitter about that because I don't have any me time, and I can't get any me time because my dang kids won't go to bed on time, and they won't go to bed on time because bath time takes so long. Bath time takes so long because dinner was such a mess to begin with, and I can't figure out where my spouse is while we're sitting there. I do think that he's sitting there wasting time when I've been giving myself to these dang kids all day, trying to figure stuff out and shuttle everybody around and, and take care of myself. I've been studying like until I'm you know blue in the face. Uh, school's not going well. I'm not sure what it is that I want to be or become or what it, if any of these things matter at all. I don't know why I get up and go to school in the morning. It's simply probably because somebody is telling me to. What I do know is I don't want to be there because it's a waste of my time. And we spend time here and we throw time away here and eventually we get some of our own time and when we get some of our own time, we covet that time. We call it my time and nobody better invade on my time because this is now time when I spend time on myself, which generally means I waste time on some level or another. And it's because this false stronghold of commoditization of time has gotten itself into our lives. And it's not a truthful thing. Truth is that time is not a commodity. You don't spend time. You invest time. Time is a stewardship. Time is a gift. And you and I are gifted the same 24 hours every day. And the question is not, how do I spend that time? The question is, is in what do I invest and what does that investment mean and what does every piece of that mean is jesus king over my time parker for church has said we are going to ask ourselves that question that's what this sabbatical is and i would encourage you to push back against the idea that this sabbatical is for tim this sabbatical is for you This sabbatical is for each one of you to ask yourself this question, who is king? Who is king of my life? Who is king of this church? Who is king of Pottstown? Who is king of Coventry? Who is king in my workplace? And what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come in that place? What is true? What is real? We can argue ourselves into oblivion We can vain imagine ourselves doing all kinds of crazy things or seeing ourselves as much less than we actually are. Pilate was tempted with the same thing. What is truth? But as we continue down through John 19, something amazing happens, right? He delivers him to be crucified. 
The cross is built. Jesus is nailed to it, but something else is nailed to it as well. What is it? A sign. A sign. What's the sign say? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What do the religious leaders try and say? Can you just say he said he was King of the Jews? Right? It's easy to skip that part. Can, can you write on there that he said he was king of the Jews? Pilate, Pilate makes a truth statement. This whole face-off on some level, this might just be me. I don't know. This could be heresy. Feel free to burn me later. This whole thing comes down to Pilate on some level submitting to truth. He did not need to make that sign. And he could have distorted it to line up with what the religious leaders said. There was, there was no reason to write Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And it would have made sense to say he said he was king of the Jews, especially because this guy represented Caesar. And Caesar doesn't bow to anyone. This whole face-off, this epic battle ends with, with Jesus winning as he's nailed to a cross bloody and beaten beyond recognition as a human, carries his own cross there, gets nailed to it, and is completely bleeding out and broken for you and I with a sign over his head that is a truth statement that holds true for all time and all eternity, that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews, and Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the world. And the best thing that any of us can do is to live our lives focused on him and for him and for his kingdom, saying, bring it. God, bring it here. Wreck our commoditization of time. Please, God, take this idol away. Please, God, destroy fear. Please, God, destroy lust. Destroy the, uh, the things that destroy us. Destroy our unhealthy communication patterns, God. Bring your kingdom into my marriage. Bring your kingdom into my life. Bring your kingdom into our church. Be the king. I just, this epic battle between Rome and Jesus ends with a truth statement. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He is king. And that might have been put up there in some form of mockery. But it is truth nonetheless that he rules. And that dying man on that cross is how Jesus wins. If you were to say, what's the power of God? Miracles, healing, wonders, signs. Not according to the Bible. The power of God is the cross of Christ. The biggest loss is the greatest victory. And then he rises from the dead, forever conquering sin, death, and the grave. And that is our standing. That is where God calls us to root ourselves as we live with him as king and living for his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Is Jesus king? Is he king of you? Is he king of this church? Will we make him king? And will we live for his kingdom? God, thank you for the beauty of who you are Thank you for your victory, for your power, 
for your kingdom. And we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray that together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray it again. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.